Hi, my name is Skipper Chong Warson, and I'm a design director in San Francisco. Thanks for listening to How This Works. This is a show where I invite people on to talk about a topic that they know an awful lot about. I have Ben Falk with me today, and we're going to talk about permaculture and its impact on the larger environment and how that might impact our personal lives as well. Thanks for making time and space to be here, Ben. Good to be here. Thank you. So, Ben, we start our shows, well, the, the shows are all about, you know, the subject matter that you know very well. You know, we'd like to start with you as a person versus a subject matter. So, Ben, we want to find out more about you. Let's start with pronouns. My pronouns are he, him, his. How should I refer to you? The same is good for me. Great. So who is Ben Falk? Tell us some things about you. Well, I live in central Vermont, and I grew up in western New York, and I've lived in a few different areas of the world, and um, you know, I've spent a lot of a lot of time in my life um, doing like backcountry trips. I used to want to be a mountain guide, and um, and then I found ecological design in college at University of Vermont with a. Uh, this guy, Dr. John Todd, who's okay, should be more well known than he is, but he's a real forefather of modern ecological design of that field. And then I, through that, I found permaculture and um, kind of took what I was focused on and um, applied it, you know, in the front country more than the back country. But I, I still feel like it's motivated by the same feeling and kind of same intention and drive to try to kind of recalibrate myself to the natural world and live in a way that's more calibrated to how, how the actual biological world works and give back and not just take and be a, a, a more beneficial member of the living community um, okay. on, on this planet. And um, yeah, and so over time it's, it's evolved into – kind of farming and homesteading and also running this design business called Whole Systems Design, which is now almost 20 years old. And um, wow. that's kind of what I do for, well, quote unquote, for a living. But I do lots of stuff for a living. I sell honey. I keep bees. I teach courses and I sell plants, raise a nursery, a small nursery. I'd say maybe primarily I do design work, help help folks plan their site, find land as well, assess property, and then design those places. And not just mostly, I'd say, privately, you know, kind of one-to-one, okay. um, but also sometimes for towns and schools and larger projects. But I'd say maybe mostly it's uh, for families. Okay. So, Ben, what's something about you that people might not guess? And you just shared a lot of information, but something that you feel comfortable sharing, of course. Hmm. Well, it's come up recently, uh, I think, in some conversations with people that I've had. And that's that I was I had a bone infection. and I was sick for about a year of my life. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. No, it's it's actually fine. I mean, it was it's it was it's turned out to be a very um, good thing in the end. I, I amazing teacher and amazing experience uh, as long as I don't forget the lessons that were in it mm. <laughs> which are e- easy to do and life gets easy again but um yeah I guess that's one thing uh, among many okay so what is the thing that we're talking about today that you know an awful lot about I would say it's um site planning for 
promoting uh, a regenerative relationship with a place and it's also you know management of of the systems involved in that mm-hmm. you know running of a modern homestead if you will or a small farm that's great so one of the terms that you know before our conversation today i was able to get your book and dive a little bit into it but one of the topics that's talked about it a lot is this idea of permaculture and I looked it up in several different ways, and I have to admit that even after doing some preparation, I'm having a hard time wrapping my brain around it. <laughs> when I was talking to my wife about this topic, you know, she latched on to the structure of the word, and she said, oh, is it like permafrost, you know, how there are like microbes <laughs> and plants buried in the rock, soil, and et cetera. Right. Can you give us a, a definition around that word? Yeah, um, it is a difficult thing to describe, but, you know, the Bill Mawson and David Holmgren, who coined the phrase, okay. they were inspired by systems that are ages old, by you know mostly like native, you know traditional indigenous land, for lack of a better term, land management strategies, but really just cultural strategies because yeah. they were and they they were and are inseparable from land management, um, okay. the way we think of it in our kind of modern context, meaning like permanent culture permaculture just you know kind of approaches not just physical approaches but you know mental patterns too and design approaches that tend to lead uh toward the ability to um sustain um human presence and culture in a place over a long period of time to be highly sustainable which begets the need to be regenerative because so many Mm. pretty much everywhere is damaged so you can't just sustain a damaged situation a damaged status we have to you know heal and do regenerative work to then get to a place where we have something worth sustaining yeah but you know sustainability kind of has an an implicit and explicit need to to also regenerate but yeah so it's a it's a design approach primarily in that it's not necessarily a set of strategies although that's how it's often interpreted i like to think of it as you know you're doing permaculture if you're engaging in a place which includes a community in such a way that you're help you're being a beneficial member Mm. and you're also garnering your needs from the place in a way that the place is improved. So you're not just kind of extracting your needs, yeah. but you're, you're doing so your needs come out of your relationship with your place as a side yield to your work in regenerating the place. Okay. You know, it's almost like you're living on the interest of your relationship with a place, <laughs> not solely on the principle. Yeah. I really like the distinction that you're drawing because I think many people have heard the term sustainability um, as it pertains to things like recycling and other kinds of measures to conserve, but indicating that we're already at a point with our relationship with our natural ecosystem that we need to think beyond that, just conserving, but more about how do we regenerate, how do we focus on these regenerative and holistic practices that can help to rebuild the environment? Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah. We have to 
the restoration imperative is throughout, you know, any pursuit that seeks sustainability has to do restoration. Yeah, for sure. You talked about in your introduction of yourself doing like mountain country trips, um, growing up in Western New York, the notion of front country versus back country. What got you started in this work? Is that sort of where it started? I, I think so. I mean, I think where it started is, you know, impossible to pin down, right? Because it's every, you know, a hurricane comes from a butterfly flapping its wings initially, right? Maybe sure. things like, you know, there's no, uh, there's no discrete source of anything, I think. But um, maybe in a, in a more obvious way, I think maybe the place it started was that I, I spent a lot of time growing up outside actually spending a lot of time in trees, like um, climbing trees. Those were, I think, very pivotal experiences, falling in love with trees because so much of my work now is based around trees and um, tree systems, you know, permanent agricultural systems, which are perennially based. Um, But also my folks, I was very lucky to have parents who took, instead of taking us to Disney World and whatever, you know, amusements like that, they took us to national parks. Oh, wow. And, um, yeah, you know, we didn't like it at the time, per se. I mean, <laughs> You'd rather go to my, Disney my World. My sister and I, yeah, I think at that point, <laughs> in the beginning anyway, we certainly would have rather gone to Disney World like our friends and stuff. But, sure. um, you know, in the end, or even after just a little while, I think we realized that it, that it was way cooler, and way more interesting mm. than, you know, just some amusement park. So I think that that was pretty pivotal. I mean, I went to Yosemite. My parents actually—I was born in California. Oh, okay. Uh, in, in Palo Alto, and um, oh, my folks Sape. credit some of my path to to them taking me to Yosemite when when my mom was pregnant with me, and you know, kind of being at the base of El Cap, you know, an exceptional kind of cathedral of the planet. Yeah. You know, when I was in utero, and I, I think that's probably true <laughs> to, to some <laughs> extent. And then I, I was way into rock climbing for, besides for permaculture, I'd say rock climbing was is the other thing I've given 10, 20,000 hours of my time to. And um, I don't much anymore, but that was like a huge, huge focus for a while. I see. One of the things that you get into in your book, and we'll get into that very shortly, is the idea of natural resilience. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Mm-hmm. Well, I think, you know, it depends on the context, but when, when I, I do use the term resilience a lot, and it, it has to do with system, the way I, I, I tend to focus on it is systems that support us, you know, food, mm. shelter, mm-hmm. staying warm, having water, and those kinds of basic needs being met in ways that are robust and less brittle, uh, less prone to failure. And if they fail, easier to fix and to keep functioning. Mm -hmm. Um, So they tend to be like passive systems. They tend to be technologically less complex Mm. and legible and um, oftentimes not not high tech, you know, deliberately um, quite low tech, you know, like the term appropriate technology, like Mm. levels of of complexity in a technology that are manageable yeah. and aren't dependent on highly complicated exchanges of, of materials and energy and, you know, parts and te- things that come from China and <laughs> energies that come from, you know, the North slope of Alaska or wherever it may be yeah. to, to have basic needs met. And, um, 
so the like terms of resilient homestead for instance or resilient house you know Mm -hmm. you can see how those such systems are um we can see certain examples of, of such systems let's say i'm standing in front of a wood stove right now okay this piece of technology doesn't know if there's electricity coming into the house or not it, it functions either way it doesn't matter when the power goes down which is a function of spaghetti string of cables going thousands of miles <laughs> and then lots of complexity as far as that power power being generated yeah coming into this building and the wood stove doesn't know the difference and keeps providing heat just based on the stored sunlight in the wood being released from you know this chain reaction of combustion and it's a beautiful thing. Yeah. And it, it, it comes oftentimes those, those resilient systems come at, at an expense of convenience or our own time input. Sure. But then they can yield a certain meaning and a certain value on that front that can be really valuable. But, but we have to kind of get over the, 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 less, the lower convenience is pretty much consistently a part of that exchange that we're making to get something more resilient. Yeah. We have to play a role in it. You know, we have to be a participator in it versus just, hey, Alexa, you know, turn the heat <laughs> up to 72 or whatever people are doing right now. I, I don't know. I've heard Alexa's a thing, but yeah, talking to your, you know, your appliances in your house. That's right. The heating systems and whatnot. Yeah. I was going to draw that distinction between the notion of setting a thermostat through voice or a physical device and that being some level of convenience We've been sold that as a promise, right? Like it's more efficient, it saves energy, mm-hmm. less mind share, less attention. But the the notion of a wood stove, which as you point out, is a device and a process that has been utilized for centuries, maybe not the stove itself, but the notion of like burning wood for sure. heat. But then it also depends on things like having a supply of wood, um, stoking the fire, um, maintaining that over time, you know, when it's cold. Mm-hmm. And, and I imagine right now in Vermont, it's pretty cold mm-hmm. so that that requires a certain mind share and physical exertion to maintain that heat source for your home it does yeah absolutely and and that's where i think it's easy to miss the values in that like i have never i haven't been to a gym and i mean i've never really been to a gym to, <laughs> to exercise quote unquote in my adult life okay because i i process all the wood you know i log i drop the trees the wood i'm looking at right now you know, I, I first encountered when it was a, when they were standing in a tree, you know, 20, 30, 50 feet off the ground. And I fell the trees every winter Okay. and I dragged the trees out and then I cut the logs up and then I split them and then stack them and then bring them into the house and then stack them again and then put them in the wood stove. And now they're providing the heat. Yeah. So that's all a very physical thing. I mean, that's my gym, you know, and, and, and then everything else, you know, the gardening and the soil preparation and the planting trees and harvesting. So, you know, there's a lot of these other, uh, these other yields that I think it's easy to, um, to realize after you engage in them that we kind of end up having to fill these holes that are left by these lifestyles of quote unquote convenience Mm -hmm. by having to do all this other stuff because we're not actually doing the things we're kind of evolved to do, which is being very physically tactile in the world around us, you know, in large part to meet our own needs. And we've created this systems where our needs are being met by so many other means other than our bodies and our minds. And then we have to try to, you know, fill these, these voids that are part of, of that kind of relationship 
we're just kind of plugged into a drip of needs being met yeah. you know, automatically. And then we're like, oh, but I have to move my body and I have to challenge my mind. And uh, yeah, it's, it's an interesting conundrum. And so, you know, our question is, people that are trying to plug in into a way that's mutually beneficial to the places we live okay. and, and to ourselves is just how do we, how do we insert ourselves into this, into the landscape around us to meet our needs in ways that are beneficial to that place, but also to our bodies. And, you yeah. know, some, some types of work like digging holes, you know, certainly is harder on the sure. body than splitting wood or scything grass or sure. compost or, you know, so some things are more mutually beneficial than others. Yeah. So you've written a book, and it's called The Resilient Farm and Homestead. You include some of these details in your introduction. And the book's backdrop is a terraced research farm in Vermont, where you live. And um, one of the descriptions that I read about it was like, you even have rice paddies, which I don't know that I realized was even possible in an area of the country like Vermont. Would you finish painting the picture of your home, your, that, that, that scene for us? Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah, I didn't know, you know, know they were possible either. Growing rice was possible <laughs> either here until I saw a photo of um, northern Japan, which is a similar climate. There are rice paddies covered in snow. And I said, oh, oh sure. maybe that's doable here. Looking at like climate analogs. Yeah. So other aspects of of our home place are, you know, gardens and fruit trees and nut trees and ponds and um you know, sometimes animals, grazing animals, and um, forestry work, and you know, wood stove and uh, yeah. wood fired sauna, and um, you know, my family, and um, yeah, that's, that's you know, hand handmade buildings, things like that. Yeah. Um, nothing too unusual, really. I mean, none of this stuff is really new. You know, I, I didn't want the publisher to use the word innovative when they on the cover of the book, which they did because like innovations, what sells, I guess. Right. And novelty, but it's a bit of a drinking game these days, really to use the word innovation in a sentence. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. And it's like, well, we don't need to innovate at all (laughs) right right now. Like we really have no need to innovate. We need to apply what we know. Bill Mawson was famous as saying, you know, we just need to spend the next hundred years applying what we've learned in the last 20. Mm. And then we can talk about you know, innovating again, you know, at that point. But but we're not applying what we know yeah. and, and really thoroughly reflecting on, on what we truly understand and internalizing those the lessons and then living them out. So so but just to circle back that that a lot of this, you know, none of this stuff is per se new under the sun. And it's just trying to. um you know, orchestrate them all together into a functional whole. Yeah. So can you walk us through a day in the life living and working and educating on the farm? Sure. Well, this time of year, it's, it's pretty much uh, hibernation and, and, you know, getting outside skiing. Sometimes I'll do some, some foraging, but there's not much to, to harvest this time of year. Okay. Um, although there's, there's a little, there's a few things. Um, I what would you what would you forage if if you were going out to? Well, this time of year, I'm actually looking at a big chaga right now, which is a like a, a fungi, which is medicinal that okay. I do harvest in the winter. But pretty much, I harvest firewood in the winter. I see. I try to do it before the snow really comes. So I've pretty much done with my firewood harvesting for this year. Okay. And also, I got a little sawmill, so I'm also logging for for lumber, you know, for, to actually saw up lumber into 
boards and posts and beams for building maintenance and new buildings. But that's, you know, there's in the winter, it's like I ski a lot, try to catch up on sleep and sure. just you know, sauna and jump in the pond and just restore our, our bodies and minds and try to, you know, take on like more in, indoor projects. Yeah. Build stuff, maintain stuff, equipment, buildings to some extent. And then, you know, the growing season is really only like less than six months long in a lot of ways here. Some, in some ways, our frost season is only three months long mm. or a little more. So it's quite intensive and luckily the days are really long and that's waking up early and, and being outside in the gardens, just trying to keep up with what needs to happen, like whether it's starting seeds in March, February, March, onions and shallots and getting the things started that need to be started and then pretty soon tomatoes after that and raising all that those crops up and getting them in the ground just at the right timing and then harvesting them you know keep maintaining them for the growing season make sure they have water yeah. and food and then harvesting and trying to put everything up for the winter and you know just the rhythm of, of what the season demands it's all seasonal and that's what i love about it you know, we don't really make our own schedule. We our schedule is made by what the weather and the time of year require, which I think is a real relief rather than just kind of having this blank slates of like what do we want to do or what does our work you know, our kind of work according to schedules, like the human schedule yeah. demand of us. Yeah. Uh, I find that really not very compelling compared to like, okay, like it's a beautiful sunny day now. The ground's pretty dry. It's time to pull the garlic and start curing it. Yeah. Or, you know, get this or this in the ground because it's going to rain for three days and let's get those seeds in the ground. Yeah. So adapting to what's not, not just the season, but then also what's happening in the world. Like you yeah. said, rain's coming. Um, it's going to be pretty dreary the next few days. Then this kind of needs to happen, making sure you have enough wood for the winter, um, those sorts mm -hmm. of things. Yeah. And the neat thing about that is it's, it's a dance that's endlessly interesting because you can always get better at it. Yeah. I mean, I think about some things I did 10, 15 years ago is I wasn't as good as that. So I would be sure. you know, putting the chains on the tractor when it was like eight degrees outside and now I can watch the, I know, okay, that's going to have to happen. I watch the weather. I do it when it's 45 degrees or 50 or 60 sure. degrees out before that cold comes and, you know, apply that to everything and try to just get, you know, always move to a place of a higher degree of grace in that interaction with the seasons and the weather to be able to do it with less work and a better result. And then ultimately that, what that does is free up time and reduces stress yeah and i think makes us as a family unit able to hopefully be more available to like neighbors and other people so we're not just like bogged down with our own stuff and uh, we're hopefully contributing being able to be in a position to contribute more i mean that's i think kind of the goal yeah you know it's not to just make this function more and more perfectly every year per se just for our own for our own purposes yeah what about one of the things that you mentioned that is a part of your livelihood is teaching classes? Are you, do you teach classes much in the wintertime? No, no, we don't. Um, our annual permaculture course is our main class, and that's 10 days in the summer, okay. usually in like late July, August. And 
And then we have other short courses we've done on and off over the years. And they're always pretty much in the summer, fall, because people are camping and better weather for all yeah. that. Yeah. Uh, and more going on outside. You know, this part of the world, and we're under a foot to two feet of snow right now. I'm <laughs> looking out in the woods from, from where I am. And, you know, it, it, it's kind of nice. There's just not much to be done right now. We get to take a big break. Yeah. But then so much has to happen in a pretty short amount of time. Yeah. So just your description and the pictures that I've seen of the farm, it sounds idyllic. And mm -hmm. and I understand that this is a continuously evolving system and experience, but is this what you had in mind when you started? Like, was this sort of like the kernel of the plan? This is what you had hoped that it would become? Right. You know, it's not what I had in mind per se. Okay. And it's also, I'll, I'll circle back to it, but it's also not, it's not the simple life. You know, I don't know. There's this uh -huh. funny term, the simple life. Um, I think it's the good life for yeah. a lot of people, of people yeah. who want to be hands-on and want to play a role themselves okay. in their existence, in the basics of their life, and who derive a lot of meaning from that, which I think are most people to some extent, because sure. um, I think it's it's instinctual, even if we don't know we want to do that. Um, it comes out over time when you, when you put yourself in those situations. But um, it's not simple in a lot of ways. It's elemental. Yeah. It's instinctual, yeah. but in some ways it's way simpler to just, you know, you go in your house and you turn up the heat, you turn up the thermostat instead of <laughs> we wake up and we're like, oh, we didn't bring the wood in yesterday. All right. I mean, I'm going to go outside either, you know, in my underwear or put some clothes on and go out and it's five degrees and bring wood in. But, but like, those things are cool. I mean, it, they're inconvenient, but they're also really awesome. Yeah. I mean, maybe they're not awesome to do into your, when you're, if you have a broken leg or when you're old, I mean, you definitely want help and you, you need, you need a family and, a, and or a village to do all this to some, to some extent. But yeah. it, it's funny that, you know, people call it, it has this, have this term, the simple life, because it's certainly, you know, dancing with the seasons and the season and having to plan ahead and live based around the weather. I mean, that's all actually very complex, Yeah, but in that way is also, you know, incredibly meaningful, challenging and, yeah, there's a lot of value that comes from that. But to circle back to part of your question too, I mean, I didn't, I didn't picture it exactly. I had visited some people in college when I, I did my final thesis project in at university at undergraduate school on vernacular architecture suited oh, okay. to Vermont. Okay. And by do to do that, I, I interviewed a bunch of people, and um, some of those people were like what I would now call homesteading. I didn't really think of it in that way then, but they were okay. know, people living hands-on kind of making, being part of their own food production and fire, you know, heating their homes with their own wood and that kind of thing. And yeah, I think that was a big inspiration. You know, I met this guy, Richard, who was just had this cabin. He was living in this cabin he built for like $5,500 and was, we were cracking out black walnuts at his table that from trees that he had planted 30 years earlier and wow. eating bread from, you know, grain that he grew and, you know, kind of sitting around this, this handmade life he had made for himself. And yeah. th at those moments were times when I was like, Oh, like this, you can live this way. Like this makes a lot of sense. And because I grew up in the suburbs, yeah, I, we didn't have a vegetable garden ever growing up. You know, I didn't know what it was like to pull food from the front yard. Okay. To eat. Okay. I was totally like very mainstream suburban 
kid. So th- these were all very unusual experiences for someone with my with my background. I didn't grow up with it yeah. at all. So I think yeah, th- those I think maybe those one of those experiences set the stage. But you know, it, it all unfolds over time, and I try not to have too many expectations about it because I've learned they're usually wrong. So <laughs> just kind of let it unfold. That's fair. I want to jump into something that you just said, because I don't understand the term, but vernacular architecture. Can you break that apart? Mm -hmm. That's just term for the design and and kind of construction of of buildings, of the built environment that are, you know, endemic to a specific place and culture. The strategies and approaches, techniques that have emerged in the relationship between a people and a place over more than decades and just through architectural fads or construction fads, but over usually, you know, centuries and millennia where there's a lot of wisdom embodied in those systems because they, they've stood the test of time. You know, these are approaches that have emerged in that fittingness between people and place for a long, long periods of time, many generations. And, um, and that's just a really rich kind of ethnography and study to look into because you, you start to see a lot of, um, you know, wisdom in those approaches and, and, and a lot of um, tips and pieces of evidence as to how we can do things better yeah. by looking at those adaptations that people have, have figured out. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, just putting a little bit more vocabulary and context around it. Thank you for sure, yeah. jumping into that. You know, in your intro video on your website, on the voiceover, you ask a question that I find very thought provoking. It's around this idea of how many designers are living in the system that they designed every day. And as a designer, a different kind of design than necessarily you work in, but this really hit me. Because I think this notion of designing in a vacuum or solving someone else's problem and shipping out the solution to somewhere else, like your work is removed from your life. Mm -hmm. This really impacted me. Why do you think that's important? Why is that something that is, was such a top line question that, you know, when you watch that video, that's one of the things that you ask. Mm -hmm. I think it's just really academic. I think the at least the field I'm in, and I think a lot of fields are quite academic. Mm. If you're not like living out the results of what you do, if you create something, like you said, and then ship it off, there's no feedback loop there. And you really don't know the value of what you did. It may or may not work. It may work for some people, not for others. And you just don't get to live with, with it and with the results of your designed thing yeah and certainly when it comes to you know buildings and land gardens and food production systems agriculture um, animal husbandry any type of built systems or technological systems that we live with you have to spend time with them because they also they work differently you know in day one and year one year two and year 10 yeah. you know in year 20 they, they sure. just don't they don't function the same way it's like you know product testers you know good yeah if you rush a backpack or a jacket to to market you you know you may you may have some features on it that seem really awesome yeah you know in the lab and then only through being out in 
some different weather, do you realize, oh, that actually ices up. Like, that's terrible. Right, right. But we didn't have ice. You know, it didn't freezing rain in right. the lab. Yeah. There's myriad conditions like that. Right. So um, we have to kind of live, live with these systems and um, to really, I think, get good at designing and making them yeah. it's it's the it's in the management of them where we really learn to be good designers i think like i learn more about design when i'm out in the shop or i'm in the greenhouse or i'm in the garden or i'm in the woods that's actually when i'm really doing my design work in a lot of ways it's not in the design studio hmm. you know like that's hmm. why i don't like when people say oh what design software do you use it's like the design <laughs> software i use is my brain and my body right the the software you're talking about is the communication software it's to communicate the content right but it's not the it's not to generate the content if we if we let the software generate the content you know that's not going to be very good so yeah there, there's kind of really important distinctions there i think yeah I think you're absolutely spot on 100% that people like to glom onto the process in this way of, you know, they think of architects and the way that they sketch things out, or I work in digital product design. So, you know, when you're working on what a product experience looks like, or, you know, what do wireframes look like, you know, they, they really get caught up in the minutia of the process, but really, the problem dictates the solution figure out the problem first and mm -hmm. then you know that maybe that notion of like occam's razor like simplest solution is the best solution figure out the solution and that solution is going to work for think and think about who you're solving for are you solving for yourself are you solving for your family are you solving mm -hmm. for someone who lives down the road or are you solving for someone who lives halfway around the world i think there's something really powerful but there's something really hard about that that's a really difficult process to grok whereas just figuring mm -hmm. out, oh, what, what tool do you use? And you say, oh, I use Photoshop for this. And it's just like, oh, okay, mm -hmm. I'll go learn Photoshop. So you get caught up in one piece right. of the process, but not actually solving the problem. Right. Well, and I think there's something, there's a genericness that has and a universality and a kind of globalist kind of um, mindset that's led us into this, like an industrial, if you will, mm. kind of mindset where we, we, we think we, we can get our solution from this guy who lives a thousand miles away or, or in a different country or whatever. Right. And it's really all of our situations are so custom. And yeah. I think, and that's where, like, if you want input from someone, you know, someone wants value from a designer to help them set up a, a house, you want to get it from someone who lives like you want to live. You know, they, they sure. can't. You know, if they if they live very differently and they they really like different things than you, it's very unlikely they'll be able to do that. So mm. it's it's all like very custom. I mean, I think even you can make this parallel in healthcare or architecture or product design and anything. We're all you know very unique people, and um, we can't kind of find um, our solutions just kind of anywhere generically like all of our situations are very custom you know it's our in the in the, my field we use the term the holistic context you mm. know all the nuance that goes into your specific context yeah and just because someone else's solution and they may also be a homesteader or a farmer or live in a rural place but sure. their context may be different in some key ways and guaranteed they are yeah. that whatever works for them great may actually work terribly for for you and it you know so it's all all about context. And yeah. I think context is just incredibly easy to forget. We all tend to forget context like all the time. Yeah. 
um, it's really hard to remember how contextual everything is. Yeah, that's a good, that's a really good reminder. I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about something that you mentioned in the book. And it's a statistic that you have where the U.S. Census Bureau has hashed out that the average American moves 11.7 times in their lifetime. Why is that important? Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, it has to do with kind of what we're, what we're talking about right now in that, that, that lack of feedback between what you do yeah. and what the results are, which in living systems take years and sometimes decades to work through and, and emerge. So I think one of the reasons that's really important is if you're moving every 11.7 years, whatever it was <laughs> when I was researching that and writing the book, or they move, was it that people move 11.7 times or move every 11.7 years? I forget which was the, what was the statistic? Oh, the note that I have is 11.7 times, but it could times be every... in their lifetime. Yeah, sure. in their lifetime, sure. So. Which is a little more than uh, probably every 11.7 years. Yeah. So it's maybe every set seven years or whatever, depending on the, average, the lifespan. But yeah. same, same difference. It, moving around a lot means you don't get to understand a place very deeply yeah. because... You don't get to see. Are there less birds of this species here now than there was when I moved here? Is mm. you know, is the grass composition, or the diversity in this field changing, and how? And you know, what's happening with the soil in my garden? And you can't even tell like if things are getting worse or better. And and then never mind how your action is playing into that. Yeah, things you're doing. And so with living systems, it just takes a while. You know, I think it takes a solid five to ten years to start getting you know, into the rhythm of a place, pretty reasonable, I think, general generalization that it's, it's, you know, it's not in a year or two. Yeah. And then even certainly I'm seeing things, you know, in year almost 20 now that I, I never could have seen in year five or year 10. And so that, that relationship and kind of what it demands and, and kind of honoring the complexity of that relationship, I think means that um, if we're going to really behave well and kind of act with as much skill as possible and effectiveness to being a beneficial member of the place. Yeah. The longer we have a tenure in a place and, and the kind of wiser our relationship gets with that place, the, the better. And it, it does take a long time. I really, it takes generations. You yeah. Know, when you look at it, a lot of, a lot of the most brilliant indigenous systems you know they couldn't have come up with in 10 or 20 or 100 years you know they needed 50 genera 50 human generations to really come upon certain strategies and, and manifest certain brilliant approaches that, that people have all around the world yeah so that you know the lack of rootedness and the you know kind of the mobility of our modern life is very much at odds with the ability to do great things in a place. Yeah. I, I think part of what I hear you saying is that by moving around as much as we do, and after I read this piece in your book, I was having a discussion with my wife at the end of the day. And between the two of us and our situations, I don't think we're part of that average 11.7 times, but my father was in the military growing up. Her father um, and mother moved around a fair amount early in her life. Mm -hmm. So the numbers we came up with were, I think, she'd moved somewhere between like 50 and 60 times in her life thus far. Wow. And yeah, mine was closer to like maybe three dozen. Mm -hmm. But I, I hear what you're saying, like not staying in a place almost 
cut short your relationship with that place and cheats you out of some of the lessons of living in a place for longer, especially when you have to consider the ramifications on the natural world, on the physical world, et cetera. Sure. That being said, you know, there's a lot to learn from, from traveling, from living in different places. You know, I don't, I don't mean to discount that for a moment. But it seems like that's not what we're lacking, you know. Right, right. Like we're doing that a lot, you know. Like, I mean, I remember my father is, is he's still a doctor, and but he was a doctor in a rural area for his most of his career, a relatively rural area in Western okay. New York. And one of his one of his patients one day said to him, you know, he said, "Oh, where are your kids?" And they, he said, "His patients said they moved really far away. One of them's in Syracuse, and like one's in Buffalo. And this is near Rochester, <laughs> New York." Okay. And my dad, remember, my dad was thinking, "Well, that's not that far. I mean, right. you're talking like sixty minutes each way." Right. And but for that person's reference point in, in rural America, that the reference point is that is kind of moving away. Yeah. So, but in the urb, more urban, suburban world I had raised in, I mean, you know, you might go to college in the other side of the country and just yeah. like stay out there. Yeah. And um, the kind of atomization that that I think has become so common. Yeah, you know, it, it, there's a lot. There's some beautiful benefits to it, and then there's some deep level costs that I think we're not totally um, reckoned with just yet. Yeah. You know, my wife and I recently relocated from New York City where we lived for about 10 years, out here to the Bay Area in San Francisco. And one of the things that we have had to come to terms with in the last year in living here is this notion of fire season in California. And you have a part of your book where you talk about some of the Native American populations and how they managed the woodlands and you know the, the fire management str- uh, strategies and all of that. Can you talk about that a little bit in terms of, and we've hit on some of these notions already, but this idea of some of these things that are sometimes the best solutions are the things that have been done for decades or centuries uh, beforehand. Yeah, certainly. The fire example in California is great. And that's finally after decades of plenty of people saying, you know, we should take a cue from how original the original Californians managed that landscape and participated in that landscape for thousands of years. Yeah. Interacting with the fuels and the biomass that was there and the plants that are there. Yeah. Mitigating some that, of that risk. Yeah. Yeah. That mitigated that risk that, that got them a yield that helped them live off mm-hmm. the place from from and with the place. Um, but also worked with the place in a way so that there was less catastrophic levels of fire. And, um, yeah, we're finally, you know, finally that conversation is starting to get some airtime nationally. I don't know how much land area it's, um, it's affecting in terms of management, but sure. native peoples the world over are the people who know how to, you know, quote unquote, manage, you know, land, quote unquote, resources yeah. the best because yeah. they've had to learn those things to survive. Yeah. And they've also been there the longest and they've right. been listening most carefully for oftentimes just reasons of utility. Yeah. So, yeah, absolutely. I mean, like I said before, I don't think we need innovation so much <laughs> as to apply basic understandings, you know, with consistency and without 
mostly just funneling the benefits towards the few, which is pretty much the design yeah. <laughs> of our current system. So I, I love that idea of taking inspiration and modes of operation from past success. Um, and this idea of sometimes in the design space, you know, there's, there's lots of buzzwords. We've already identified innovation, iteration, collaboration, like all of these sort of like shuns. But I, I think that this idea of working on something consistently and maybe not focusing on machine or a technology to solve the problem, but hey, has this been a problem for a while? And something like fire has been. It's been a problem for a very long time. So how did native peoples deal with it? And like you said, it was in their best interest to make sure that they didn't necessarily diminish their game supply or cut down too much of the plant and vegetation layer or not to damage their the plants that they use for medicine, things like that, but really taking a lesson from maybe things that have been done before that can be successful today. Yeah, absolutely. We, I mean, we really have to spend the next bunch of decades or longer resuscitating those lessons, yeah. you know, and, and across the board. I don't know how likely we are to do it because we are so impressed with novelty and kind of new monetizable strategies that yeah. are quote unquote innovative and all of these things and it, the shiny object. Yeah. I think there's just something that unfortunately seems to be missing in terms of like the sexiness of systems and strategies that have stood the test of time. And, you know, no, I mean, no one puts this better, I think, than Wendell Berry, you know, the well-known author and, and farmer from Kentucky who just does a great job of kind of studying the, the value of things that have stood the test of time and, mm-hmm. and, remarking and commenting on how you know those things demand our attention and um, not that all all those things are great uh, or should be kept but that in of themselves is something still around and has been around for millennia chances are it's probably better than the thing that just emerged which hasn't stood a test of time at all and we should at (laughs) least hasn't been tested yeah yeah we should at least put them on even playing field never you know not hold up the new thing as as better you know yeah. quite the opposite really we should be quite skeptical of the new thing yeah um, and our world our world is is kind of the antithesis of that today and and maybe has been for a while not, not a long time but you know maybe hundreds of years or maybe just a few decades i'm not sure but yeah whatever it is it seems pretty maladaptive yeah I imagine that there are some people who are listening to our conversation right now who are thinking, well, you know, we've already done some of these things. Like we recycle, you know, we compost, maybe they have an electric car, you know, smart thermostats, like all these things. Like we're trying to Mm -hmm. save as much as we can. Um, Mm -hmm. What else can we do? What would you say to people like that who are thinking, who are bristling at some of the things that we might be talking about and saying, well, I don't know what I can do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I think there's a world of opportunity that's very empowering for, for all of us to find yeah. in going through the window into how can we be producers? Like, how can we actually help meet some of our needs rather than just and, and improve a place rather than just do less bad or <laughs> take from it a little less? Right. And I think that's actually that is very to use a 
poor term, addictive. I mean, it's very compelling mm. to realize that you can actually do good, not just, you know, do less bad. And I think most of us know that, you know, interpersonally, like hopefully we're trying to add value to the people we are in, in a relationship with. Sure. Um, not just like take less. Right. <laughs> not right. just extract and mine a little less, right. be a little less extractive. Be a little less but shitty. Yeah. When it comes yeah. To, <laughs> but when, yeah, when it, when it comes to our relationship with a place, which should be just as multi-layered and as interesting and, and complex as a relationship with another person. Yeah. They're all part of our relations. We tend to just accept this idea of just, you know, do a little less bad, just kind of conserve, take a little less. And uh, rather than like, of course we should put back, you know, yeah. I think in, in native American terms, that's, you know, what I heard Robin Wall Kimmerer, for instance, just say, say is that's just simply good manners, you know, because mm. that's just regarding the world around you as, as your relations rather yeah. than like what you call your natural resources. We call our relatives. We call our ancestors, you know, sure. and that's hard for us to wrap our minds around. I mean, I, I say it personally as like a displaced, you know, white person. I, I'm trying to understand that in my life. It's a tough one because yeah. I wasn't raised with that. And I, so I think. You know, but just to get to your question, I think anyone, no matter where they are, even if they're really urban or not, you know, kind of with land, so to speak, can improve. Uh, it can have a positive impact on that place. It could be sowing some seeds in an abandoned lot, you know, literally mm. broadcasting some clover seed into an empty lot that's mm. barren that you walk past on your way to work. Like that's a regenerative action. Okay. It can be, you know, keeping the tiniest of gardens, you know, raising some salad greens on a balcony in a in a pot of mm. compost or or choosing to compost, you know, versus throwing your food scraps out. That's both a conservation strategy and a regeneration strategy. You can have a worm sure. bin even in a city and and grow like amazing potting soil under your kitchen sink, you know. Yeah. There's endless, you know, endless opportunities for that. And I, I think people who have all the solar panels in the world and all the heat pumps or whatever it is, all the efficiency appliances and all that to use less GPM sure. can still make a decision to actually not just do less bad, but to do good. And that that's, you know, a lot more interesting. I think, I think people will find a lot more value in that, you know, cause it's like not that great to just feel like, well, I'm doing a little less bad. I'm doing less bad, <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's not, not much to congratulate oneself on compared to, wow, I just, you know, I just planted flowers in an abandoned lot and now I'm watching the flowers, you know, feed bees and butterflies, yeah. you know, three months later. Yeah. I, I love the way that our conversation has gone, but I want to make sure that we haven't missed something. Ben, is there something that we haven't talked about yet, but that you want to get into? Oh, well, there's many, many things, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> of course we miss things, you know, we're, of course we're going to miss a million things and that's fine. I don't think we missed anything that's that can't go missed for now. But uh, okay. yeah, there, there's so much, you know, more. I, I mean, I would encourage folks to, you know, look into the world of regeneration and permaculture if this stuff seems compelling to them. Okay. Well, I'll throw in a question that we had down on the list that we were exchanging back and forth. You talked about how, you know, when you started the farm that this wasn't exactly the picture that you imagine, but it is the picture that you have. And there's, there's so much satisfaction that you receive from it and so many other benefits. Like what's one of the next challenges that you want to tackle at the farm? Mm -hmm. You know, mainly the challenges I want to tackle are not on the land that I live on. They're, they're, they're in the community. They're, they're oh. trying to 
they're trying to convey the goodness offsite because like you know at some point we're almost year 20 in now and, and like things are pretty dialed like we have our systems are so many more times dialed in and robust and resilient than than most people's home systems are so it's like yeah. i could keep trying to perfect that but that's not really getting at the weakest link the weakest link is like helping others do the most basic parts of it because mm. like like anything i mean if you're if you want to improve the whole system, you work on the weakest links of the system for the max leverage point to improve the whole. And the weakest links, I think for, for most of us are, um, you know, we can often find outside ourselves. I mean, I can, I'll keep dialing in these systems here, but I think, you know, we've been trying to plant uh, public spaces up and, and kind of donate and, and commit time to like helping, um, community orchard spaces get established and planted and community like gardens for hungry families. We're working with a project on that now and trying to do that more and more. Now it's hard to do that. You know, it's not that easy. I can, I can make more of a difference in my own land more easily because it's like I have that access. It can be hard to access and a lot of people don't want help or, you know, it's hard to help others sometimes. But um, that's really, I think where my wife and I are trying to put our efforts more and more yeah as far as on site growing food more easily and for a longer you know amount of storage into the dormant season and i don't always continuing to get more tree crops established and i don't know i do a lot with like welding and craft you know kind of woodwork and i'm always i always have more more goals on that front but there's nothing too um too dire that i'm trying to to improve you know my own uh landscape yeah now so let's get into some of the closing questions and these are the closing questions that i ask everyone who comes on the show ben what's one of the most important lessons that you've learned so far in your life or in your work and it can echo back something that we just talked about or it can be something new mm-hmm. well i think i'd say one there's there's a lot but say one that i'm particularly trying to focus on lately is um digging into patterns of relation relating and also a being that are old that are probably come from childhood and from like dealing with stresses that are part of life growing up and then okay what patterns come from that 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 you take on that maybe you didn't intend to and don't serve you trying to like do a lot of that i I guess more inner work you know personally i think that's really where i've been trying to put more time mention can you you phrase that question again so i can just think about it in another way sometimes the way that i ask this is around like what's something you wish you would have learned earlier right that's a good way to put it probably to do things more thoroughly take on less but do them more thoroughly and better Mm. than to take on you know a lot and do them as well like one way that's kind of made real is like it's easy to t- to try to manage, you know, more acres and not do that, not do it as well, and lose trees that you planted to deer because you didn't really protect them well enough or whatever. I see. Than to just focus on a core that's like you really can keep up with, and you can get like a lot more food, for instance, and I think a lot more enjoyably and less stressfully if you care really well for a small area than take on a big area under your care and do a do it more poorly i, I would say that's a that's one because i early on i was qu- quite burned out for a number of years and stressed out trying to like 
rise to the challenge of like all 10 acres and then mm. realizing, wait a minute, I don't have to do anything with those three acres. Like that, that's sure. fine. Like they can just stay there and nature can do her thing <laughs> there. And I can just focus more effort on a smaller area. And also I think not to forget people in the process, you know, like I, I'm, mm. I can be like very focused on work and I think lost a lot of focus on certain people in my life in the first bunch of years with developing my landscape. Mm. And if I did it again, I would have liked to keep carry more people along with me and be able to spend more of my attention with them, even though it would give me less attention perhaps sure. to, to the project. But I tend to be, you know, kind of a little bit obsessive when I'm in a project and just throw myself into it. And, you know, sometimes that's what it takes. But yeah, you you bring, you know, you incur a cost when you do that for sure. Yeah. So Ben, what are two things that you're excited about right now? And the way I am asking this question, I mean something like, what's something that you're reading or that you can't put down, um, or something that you're watching or listening to? Hmm. Oh, I'd say it's like everything related to my three-year-old son, really, <laughs> and just just hanging out with him and and watching him grow and learn. That's probably the biggest one um, that I can think of. And yeah, otherwise, you know, anything related to like human health and like kind of wellness, you know, it's, it's much more, I think, uh, that focus right now for me, especially in the midwinter mm. than like in my landscape or buildings, you know, I've spent so many years of learning how to build this and that or fix this and that sure. or grow this and that. And that's really not what, not where my attention has been as much, or I've been compelled to focus on in the last few years as much. Yeah. Yeah, plus one about the note about your three-year-old. Um, my wife and I have a seven-year-old daughter. And, mm. you know, I have to say that she's the coolest movie that I've ever <laughs> had the privilege to, like, watch, right, over the course of right. her life. And, you know, and there are times that the movie's tough. Mm -hmm. Battle of Wills or, you know, whatever it is that's being discussed at hand. But it's it's just wonderful being present and getting time and space with her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think the the energy and the motion is for the next people that are coming up. And I, I feel like that's kind of where my life is right now. Not that I won't go back maybe into diving whole hog into this or that project, but right. I've been lucky since the age of about 25. I've gotten to focus on kind of manifesting myself and with a place. And I don't have to push on that pedal super hard my whole life, like after tw almost 20 years or so of doing that. Sure. You know, things are in the ground and they're growing and systems are in the fact. And, um, yeah, it's kind of all about doing it with less stress and, and sharing the, the goodness of all of it with others and, and focusing on, you know, the next generation so they can get a head start, hopefully be much further along than I was when I was 25. Yeah. I'm curious, does your, especially being three, does your son help much around the house or the farm? Uh, he wants to, yeah. <laughs> he's, you know, he's, he's learning, uh, you know, how to, he's learning the names of all the tools and there's okay. you know, hundreds of tools in the shop and, yeah. but you know, he's still just three, just passed. Yeah. So it's, I don't know at what point it'll be like a net, you know, a net <laughs> help <laughs> right now. It's certainly way more time, right. you know, put into him than like he's helping us kind of get out, so to speak of yeah. this, of, of the project. But 
you know, he's, he's learning a lot. And the other day I was up on a ladder and he was in the, on the ground in the shop and I was doing some wiring. I said, Oh, can you hand me the lineman pliers? And, uh, there's a big magnet board full of like three dozen types of hand tools. And he grabbed the lineman pliers and brought them up to me. And I was just nice. like, so happy. You know, he knows, <laughs> you know, I mean, I didn't know what lineman pliers were versus another plier until I mean, way after three years old, you know, sure. maybe, maybe I was 25 years old or something. And, yeah. um, so, you know, there's so many layers like that and they learn. His yeah. ability to learn, a three-year-old's ability to learn is just incredible. Oh, they're sponges. And, um, yeah. Yeah. His brain his brain works better than mine, you know, in a lot of ways, really. Yeah. <laughs> and so maybe that's not saying much, but it, it, it's just <laughs> incredible. And um, so I'm trying to just feed that, you know. Yeah. So, Ben, where can people find out more about you? We've talked about your book, and we'll, we'll link to that, and um, we'll link to your website. But are there other places where people can look out for you? Um, my YouTube video has a lot of content on it. I'm not always putting much on it here and there. It kind of goes in spurts, but yeah, I'd say that that's a big one. Um, I'm also less on Instagram, but there's a lot of content that I have put out there. Sure. A lot of good info, how to info that we're actually going to try to put on a blog. Oh, that's great. So it could be searchable. Um, our website too. Yeah. The, like you mentioned, the website, the book, there's going to be a revision. It looks like of the book coming out in the six to 12 months as well. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you, Ben. I appreciate you making time and space for our conversation. Thank you. Happy to be a part of it. And thank you for listening to how this works. This episode was edited and mastered by Troy Lococo. Please subscribe and leave us a review in your favorite podcast app. It would be so helpful because we're in our first season, that you would tell just one other person about the show and why they should listen to it. You can find How This Works online at howthisworks.show. It's three words, no dashes. Again, that's howthisworks.show. We're also active in the places where social media happens. I hope that you learned something from my conversation with Ben. I know I did. We'll talk again soon. Hi. <clears throat> Hi. My name is Skipper Chong Warson. I'm a design director in San Francisco. Try that one more time.